This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. And uh, this hour I am with Jola Netulo, Amanda Machaka and Nedo Chemane. Your top stories. Zimbabwe's war veterans on Monday threatened to stage a protest and sit-ins at President Mugabe's house until he resigned. Kenya's Supreme Court upholds a re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta in last month's repeat presidential vote. In economics, informal traders and convenience stores, also known as Spaza shops, in South Africa will get to use their phones to pay for transactions. And in sports, a 38-member national preparation squad released by Athletics South Africa ahead of the 2018 IAAF World Under-20 Championships. Jola Netulo has your news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. Former Zambian President Kenneth Kamunda has arrived in Harare to try to convince Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe to step down in a dignified exit. After the military seized power last week, the ruling party removed Mugabe as ZANU-PF President and First Secretary at the weekend. Lawmakers from the ruling party are due to meet at the party headquarters to discuss impeaching the 93-year-old leader. Zambian President Edgar Lungu has sent Kaunda to the capital who used the presidential jet. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's two major cities, Arari and Bulawayo, are expected to be completely shut down on Wednesday as residents mobilize in another march to prompt Mugabe to step down. Civil society is answering the war veterans' call to mobilize and demonstrate in the streets after the successful march in Harare on the weekend. Mugabe has missed the, mid- the midday deadline to resign as set by ZANU-PF. Noma Polani reports. The notes doing the rounds on social media is titled Zimbabwe Final Shutdown. Protesters will meet in each city's CBD to protest against Mugabe's defiance and refusal to relinquish power. Businesses will shut down and roads leading to both cities will be closed from 9 a.m. Wednesday morning. Public transport will not be allowed to operate as well. The message also says that all schools will close for the day. The proposed action also wants Grace Mugabe to step down from positions she holds in Zanu. PF. Protests have broken out in Kenya against a Supreme Court ruling upholding Huru Kenyatta's victory in last month's presidential election rerun. In the opposition stronghold of Kisumu, police fired tear gas as protesters burned tires. The Supreme Court dismissed the two legal challenges to the vote. A lawyer for the press for President uh, Kenyatta, Ahmed Nasir Abdullah, says the ruling should end the tension in the country. I think it's good for the country. I mean, good in the sense that we have gone through a constitutional process. One is we have satisfied that the court has spoken twice. And now that the court has reaffirmed his victory, validated it, we are happy for him, we are happy for the country. Six people, including two soldiers, have died in clashes between the army and militiamen in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Officials say an army position was attacked by two so-called Mai Mai armed groups near the town of Beni in North Kivu province. Since the beginning of 2017, Mai Mai militias have regularly attacked Congolese army positions in the region and in neighboring South Kivu. Armed Congolese groups and foreign forces control swaths of territory in North Kivu province and fighting is relatively common. The Mai Mai became prominent as armed community militias during the Second Congo War. And finally, despite global pros- progress, 180 million children in 37 countries fla- face bleaker prospects than their parents did 20 years ago. This according to an analysis conducted by World Children's Day by the United Nations Child Agency, UNICEF. The agency is commemorating the day which marks the anniversary of the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of Child of the child, rather, UNICEF South Africa's Chief of Communications, Sandra Bison. Around the world, currently, every single day, 16,000 children under the age of five die needlessly from preventable diseases like pneumonia or diarrhea. 
In South Africa, we're looking at uh, a different setup where we've made massive progress in reducing uh, child mortality, but on the front of violence against children, the situation is pretty dire. We're looking at one in three children that's been the victim of violence, be it physical, emotional, or sexual violence before the age of 18. For Channel Africa, I'm Chalani Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolane. It is 1705 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, as the political impasse caused by the military takeover last week continues in Zimbabwe, war veterans on Monday threatened to stage protests and sit-ins at Mugabe's house until he resigns. War veterans expressed dismay over the failure by President Mugabe to announce his resignation in a televised statement. Mugabe reiterated the need to follow the constitution and maintained he was still the president and commander-in-chief of the defense forces, sparking some anger among citizens. Although Mugabe might be impeached on Tuesday, war veterans have called for exerted pressure through protests. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. On Sunday night, President Robert Mugabe gave a televised speech on the state of the country a week after a military intervention. It is highly anticipated Mugabe was to tender his resignation during that moment, but alas, the 93-year-old Mugabe skated around the resignation topic and admitted the country was facing serious challenges. This brought about anger and suspense among citizens who complained of being used by the war veterans as well as the military. Meanwhile, war veterans led by Christopher Mchangwa the chairperson of the Zimbabwe War Veterans Liberation Association evolved to stage more protests and sit-ins at Mugabe's house Tuesday until he resigned. All the people of Zimbabwe are engaged in this thing, but we, the war veterans, are going back to the people and calling upon them to come back. And we are appealing to the business community wherever you are. We saw the general support which you gave on Saturday. Now we want even more support. It will be a sit-in until Mugabe's back is seen by the people of Zimbabwe. We are not going to be leaving Harare until he's gone. The call comes following Minister Patrick Chinamasa, who rubbished the support by the opposition during Saturday's protest in the capital. Muchangwa admitted the statements by Chinamasa were unfortunate. Mr. Chinamasa is the leader of a political party. We are from the War Veterans Association. We saw our actions on Saturday. They are inclusive. We called all the political parties. If he wants to just for his political party, we cannot stop him as War Veterans Association. But in our view, that statement is regrettable in the spirit of which of that which we are moving. We want an inclusive Zimbabwean thing. We have reached out to everybody. You know, you ask the Commercial Farmers Union, we are on the same page. You ask the diaspora, the diaspora is there. They are all here. We have been working together on this. We saw the demonstrations across the world, the capitals in the last week. This is a Zimbabwean initiative as far as we are concerned. No, we, will not, we are not here for the folly or myopia of political parties. No. The war veterans expressed outrage over Mugabe's failure to read his statement and failed to announce a resignation. Now we, are, we were disappointed that yesterday, in the midst of all those army generals, he appeared to swap an agreed position and proceeded to read a document which clearly is the trademark of Jonathan Moyo. <laughs> that document. And, you know, to the chagrin of the nation and to the utter outrage of the whole world, he proceeds to pretend as if his presidency is normal. It's no longer normal, Mr. Mr. Mugabe. It's done. Your president is history. While it remains unclear what exactly is taking place, Muchangwa said the intervention was necessary. So our army has got a very, very political tradition. But in the one which is now, those who remain are very, very professional. They had to intervene to arrest a situation which would force them to deal with a serious breakdown of civil order in the country because the people were real at the end of their tether with Mugabe. And the army would have been forced to intervene. But the worst thing was that the two frontline security agencies which should have handled this situation ahead 
were heavily infiltrated by the cabal of the G40. The frontline role is usually done by the police and the intelligence service. And the two institutions had been infiltrated. So a, clearly a vacuum of, a, of, 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 loyalistic, of loyalty in the administration of the country had been, had been created. And that's what necessitated the army to take what was essentially an intelligence and police corrective action against a criminal cabal which had disconsed itself behind the president and the, through his wife. Muchangwa added Mugabe is too old and speaking nonsense following his statement that the Zanupia process to recall and expel him was unconstitutional. He's talking a lot of nonsense, that old man. That's real a lot of nonsense. People who are representatives of the party in the Central Committee, they come from an election. The last election of the party was in 2013. That's the, that's the Congress which elected the people who were there. The cabal of Mugabe and his wife, they've been expelling elected people and replacing them with his appointees. Now he has the temerity to say they've no, they've no, they've no locus stand. He's crazy. He's lost his head. He's lost his marbles. Those are the elected people. The war veterans added they were approaching the high court for an order to be given declaring the military intervention last week legal and constitutional. In Arare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Kenya's Supreme Court has upheld the re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta in last month's repeat presidential vote, paving the way for Kenyatta swearing in for his second and final term. Chief Justice David Maraka said the court dismissed two petitions challenging Kenyatta's re-election in a unanimous decision by six judges. Sarah Kimani reports. Dressed in red and black robes, the six judges arrived in court just after 10 a.m. East African time. The eyes of the country trained on them. The petitioners had sought to have President Kenyatta's October victory nullified, arguing that the Electoral Commission did not seek fresh nominations and because not all constituencies voted. The bench was unanimous in its decision to dismiss the petition, according to Chief Justice David Maraga. Having carefully considered the above issues, the specific prayers in each petition, as well as the Constitution and the applicable laws, the court has unanimously determined that the petitions are not merited. And the final orders pursuant to Article 140 sub Article 2 of the Constitution as read with Rule 22 of the Supreme Court Presidential Election Petition Rules 2017 are as follows. Petition number 2 of 2017 by Honorable uh, John Aaron Mwau versus the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission and two others as cons- consolidated is hereby dismissed. Petition number four of 2017, John Mue and another versus the chairperson of the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission and three others as consolidated is also hereby dismissed. As a consequence, the presidential election of the 26th October is hereby upheld, as is the election of the third respondent. Each party shall bear its own costs. As I have stated, a detailed reason a judgment shall be issued within 21 days. The ruling threw Kenyatta's strongholds into celebrations and dance. Kenyatta's lawyers welcomed the verdict, terming it the will of the people. Njorogda Rageru is one of Kenyatta's lawyers. We are ecstatic. We are thrilled by this outcome. It was in complete conformity and compliance with the law, and it upheld the evidence that was presented. This is a well-deserved win for both the Jubilee Party and the President. The petitioners pledged to respect the decision of the court. Julie Soweto is a lawyer for the petitioners. We respect the decision of the court. It is binding on all Kenyans. It is an institution that is created by the Constitution. And we are a people that are governed by the Constitution. And therefore, we must respect the outcome that has been delivered by the court if we claim to be a people that respect the constitution of this country. 
Opposition leader Raila Odinga successfully petitioned against Kenyatta's initial victory in the August poll, but he boycotted but he boycotted last month's repeat poll, saying the Electoral Commission is biased. Kenyatta won with 98% of the vote. He will be sworn in next Tuesday. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. Seventeen sixteen Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Now, South Africa, through the Department of Transport, will host Botswana and Namibia to strengthen relations and improve cross-border transaction and customs operations along the Trans-Kalahari Corridor. The corridor, which was jointly developed in the 1990s, consists of South Africa, Botswana and Namibia. The structure was formed with an objective to contribute and promote trade facilitation within the three states through transport efficiency by simplifying and harmonizing the requirements and controls that govern the movement of goods and persons to reduce transportation costs and transit times. The event will take place on the 22nd of November in 2017 at N4 in Rustenburg, opposite Stay Easy in Northwest. In South Africa, it will start from 9 in the morning Central African time. This message is brought to you by the South African Department of Transport. The Rwandan government has announced its ambitious decision of allowing all foreigners wishing to visit the East African country to get their visa upon their arrival at any point of entry. This will come into force effective from the 1st of January next year. Silvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. The decision comes two weeks after the cabinet meeting of the 8th November this year that approved the establishment of a new visa regime for Rwanda. Now, the directorate of immigration and immigration has made it public that effective from the 1st of January 2018, this decision will be put into force and visitors will get the visa for the period of 30 days upon their arrival. Before the new regime, only nationals of the African countries and a few others were getting a visa upon their arrival. Those foreigners that I caught up with at the Office of Immigration and Immigration in Kigali did not hesitate to prove their sentiments on the new move that will no doubt is advantageous for them. So yeah, we got that news uh, yesterday from one of our friends that visa will be on arrival for 1st January for all the countries all around the world. And this is a very good initiative taken by Immigration Department and Government of Rwanda. So more and more people will come to your country. They can access Rwanda easily. Definitely tourists will be increased. You can see effect by next year. Right now. I'm here. I already I apply for uh, a guy. Is is now he's waiting the, the approval of his visa to to take his ticket and to come in Rwanda. So then, if it's like this uh, for uh, from uh, next year, it's a good it, it's a good uh, a good way. So then they have not to wait. They have to come and pay the visa in, at uh, the river. It will be a very very helpful. There's a difference, I think, because if you get it online, you have to go to do it first online, and then you are on the arrival, you have to pick it up as well. But if you do it directly, it's both things combined into one, so it's going to be easier. Other nationals from 20 countries across the world, whose countries have granted a visa for Rwandans, will be granted a free visa for 90 days. The spokesperson of the National Directorate of Immigration and Immigration, Butera Ive, says this would increase the number of people visiting Rwanda. Tugendeye ku ku cyemezo cyafashwe muri 2013 urwanda rwemerera abanyafrika bose We have based this on the decision we took in 2013 
to allow all citizens of the African countries to get their visa upon arrival. This decision helped increase the number of visitors, including tourists. Since 2013 to 2016, the number of visitors increased by 150%, right from 30,000 visitors annually to over 70,000. The government has maintained that removing all blocks for the foreigners visiting the country aim at increasing the number of visitors that have in the past few years been flocking in, seeking investment opportunities. Critics of this new move believe it could create gaps for the insecurity, but the government has always made it clear the decision has nothing to do with the security matters. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa, in Kigali. 1720 Central African Time. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. The program we're listening to is Africa Digest, and my name is Spumele Lezondi. Now, this year's theme for the 16 Days of Activism Against Women and Child Abuse is Leave No One Behind and Violence Against Women and Girls, and it emphasizes the importance of reaching the most marginalized, including refugees, minorities, and populations affected by conflict and natural disasters. The commemoration period starts this uh, 25th of the International Day to End Violence Against Women. A number of campaigns have been created to put a spotlight on the violence and harassment one in three face globally. For more on this, we're now joined on the line from New York by UN Women's Deputy Executive Director Lakshmi Puri. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello, wonderful to be there. Now, Lakshmi, this year's theme of 16 Days uh, comes at a time when many women in the film and entertainment industry have spoken out against exploitation and abuse in the industry. The stories that have come out are just uh, the tip of the uh, iceberg, are they? Well, you know, it's it's uh, symbolic of the larger issue of violence against women and girls. Uh, that what has been reported or is being reported, and that's a good thing that people are coming out and the Me Too movement and everything else that's happening around us here, but also increasingly around uh, the world uh, as a recognition that this phenomenon of violence against women in its different forms, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it is beating, uh, rape, um, you know, different kinds of uh, child marriage, uh, FGM, uh, dowry death, uh, trafficking, uh, uh, wife beating, you know, so many of these um, uh, uh, forms of violence, forced marriage, forced pregnancy, forced abortion and sterilization, forced prostitution and exploitation, all of these forms affect women and girls and they seldom get reported because of the culture of impunity, because of the culture of patriarchy and this is a global pandemic. And as you said in your introduction, this year, 16 days of activism, focuses on those women and girls who have not been able to speak and come forward and who are most vulnerable because they are poor, because they are in rural areas, because they are in communities which are uh, repressive and oppressive of their rights and uh, also many other contexts, including disability, which make them more vulnerable and make it more difficult for them to come out, to report, to get uh, justice Mm. and and support. Mm. Um, How difficult is it to change mindsets, especially um, when it comes to the cultural context, as you speak about dowry debts in certain parts, as you speak about forced marriages in certain parts of the world? um, How difficult is it to get in there and change the culture of the place? It is one of the more challenging aspects 
of the gender equality and women's empowerment agenda as it is for the whole movement for uh, ending violence against women. And I'm using the term movement building very deliberately because this is about building a movement of solidarity against violence against women the way you know you're speaking on on this uh, africa network you know the way the movement was built against apartheid to say that this is that is uh, to provoke outrage to bring evidence and say this is not acceptable that this is unconscionable for all for families for communities, for societies, for countries. So once you bring out the outrage, then you try and change, build change around it through change agents. And we at UN Women regard youth, men and boys, faith and tribal leaders who have thus far, some of them who have thus far been the transmitters and promoters and women, I would say in some cases, women are transmitters, as we have seen in FGM. They are transmitters of patriarchy and oppressive uh, patterns of uh, social norms and behaviors. So they have to really assume charge of this positive change in mindsets and stereo gender stereotypes, gendered roles, gender division of labor, and equal value and, and pro propagate equal value of men and women because that's what gender equality is about and equal humanity of men and women and recognizing that uh, other other change agents are media and social media you know now we have the power of the social media which can be used as never before equally we must uh, you know, uh, draw upon the tremendous uh, force of the women's movement, including in Africa, which is such a powerful force, but not supported enough, not fostered enough. And we are working with an African leadership of uh, women. So all of that for movement building, also the larger civil society, development, environment, um, peace and security civil society. As you know, we are also very much looking at the violence and sexual violence and other forms of violence that women and girls suffer in conflict. And in Africa, mm. particularly in conflict countries, this is a major issue. So it is about movement building, awareness raising, and part of the four P's of ending violence against women. Prevention, protection, prosecution of perpetrators and access to justice for victims and survivors and provision of multi-sectoral critical services and support to victims and survivors. Um, you speak about um, uh, patriarchy and the fact that some women um, are transmitters of patriarchy. Is it um, easy to bring men to be part of this conversation? Are men a part of this conversation? Absolutely. We have, I think, UN Women and, uh, you know, Madame Pumzile Lambo Nukuka, who is uh, the executive director of UN Women, has, in fact, shown great leadership and vision in identifying uh, men and boys as one of the biggest change agents and partners in the gender equality agenda uh, going forward. And uh, this has been recognized now also in Agenda 2030 for Sustainable Development, which has prioritized gender equality and women's empowerment and ending violence against women as sustainable development goal and target. So, uh, we have, in fact, as you know, launched a very successful He for She movement, which targets both political leaders at the highest level, but also men and boys everywhere, in wherever they are, in universities, in schools, because, you know, violence starts in schools and in homes. So we target fathers, we target uh, brothers and sons, we target... Uh, schools and universities and we target 
the the private sector because that's also another big hub for uh, violence and harassment we we target also public services and public institutions so i think it is and and policy makers and service uh, those who deliver services all of that needs to be really uh, sensitized to uh, not only the violence ending violence and zero tolerance culture mm-hmm. but also ending as you said patriarchy and creating a more gender equal uh, what we call planet 50 mm-hmm. 50 by 2030 world so hipashi movement is part of all of that yes um lakshmi and puri and again men and boys as game changers all right sure thank you very much for joining us lakshmi puri thank you Lakshmi Puri there is UN Women's Deputy Executive Director talking to us from New York 17:30 Central African Time it's time for your news headlines here Chola Netulo Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, former Zambian President Kenneth Gaunda has arrived in Harare to try to convince Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe to step down in a dignified exit after the military seized power last week. Protests have broken out in Kenya against a Supreme Court ruling upholding Uhuru Kenyatta's victory in last month's presidential election rerun. And finally, six people, including two soldiers, have died in clashes between the army and militia men in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. For Channel Africa, I'm Jordan Tulo. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam Estana companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika mu África. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest this afternoon. Now, despite global progress, 180 million children in 37 countries face a bleaker prospect than their parents did 20 years ago. This is according to an analysis conducted by Four World Children's Day by the United Nations Child Agency UNICEF. The agency is commemorating the day which marks the anniversary of the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of the child UNICEF South Africa's chief of communications Sandra Bison tells us more Well the key issue is related to child death and the five child deaths around the world currently every single day 16,000 children under the age of 5 die needlessly from preventable diseases like pneumonia or diarrhea In South Africa we're looking at a, a different setup where we've made massive progress in reducing uh, child mortality but on the front of violence against children the situation is pretty dire we're looking at one in three children that's been the victim of violence be it physical emotional or sexual violence before the age of 18 and most of these children know their perpetrators they've been violated in their homes in their schools or in their neighborhoods so that's some of the issues we're trying to raise awareness of and to help children today through world children's day we're trying to uh, give a voice to the voiceless children so they can be heard and heard by the adults and by their peers the problems you know are they universal or is they context dependent on a country well it's all 
Indeed, dependent on the country context and, you know, histories of violence are, are different from one country to the other. Obviously, in South Africa, there's the inheritance of the apartheid, and but there's also deeply rooted uh, cultural traditions that we're uh, working with government to, to change behaviors around. And why is it thought that uh, with so much progression in the world compared to years back, the children uh, face these problems that you've outlined, even uh, much so at a greater scale than their parents would ever uh, years ago? Well, it's a matter of opportunities. It's obviously, on the one hand, there's more children surviving today than there was 10 years ago, but it's it's a matter of creating opportunities for children to continuing to survive and thrive and get a prospect for a better future. And uh, obviously the work of UNICEF hand-in-hand with uh, governments and in South Africa with the South African government is to look at enabling environments, so ensuring, for instance, that the child support grant is indeed reaching the most needy children. It's ensuring that we're keeping an eye on the most disadvantaged children in the country as these are the children that very often would fall through the cracks basically that we wouldn't necessarily have key data on and that are the most difficult to track. And just to finally let's take a look at a children's day now and really what the purpose of it is all about and how can people engage in the observation of this day? So World Children's Day today, uh, first of all, it's the 71st anniversary of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. If you remember, it's the most ratified United Nations legal instrument around the world. This year, it has a very special resonance for UNICEF. We call it hashtag Kids Take Over. That means we want it to be a day by children for children, a day where children get a voice, a, a day where we give an opportunity for the voiceless children, for all children and young people to raise awareness of issues affecting them. So we're mobilizing millions of people around the world in about 130 countries to basically give voice to children. In South Africa, we're working on major takeovers of the media, of uh, business, entertainment, the entertainment industry by children. Yesterday, we had teams at the Pretoria News and the Star uh, News Agency where children were basically taking over the newsroom and uh, writing articles about issues affecting their peers. Today we have one of our key ambassadors for the day. Her name is Latissa Beyile. She's a 14-year-old girl from Johannesburg, and she's been sent to New York to represent the South Africa child and share key messages with the president of the United Nations General Assembly and to the world leaders. And that's today where she'll be, she'll be delivering a, a speech. That is Sandra Bison of the United Nations Children's Fund in South Africa talking to Zikona Meso. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja Farafina Farafina Terre de soleil Kia makande embalelwa kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Zochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. 
South Africa, through the Department of Transport, will host Botswana and Namibia to strengthen relations and improve cross-border transactions and customs operations along the Trans-Kalahari Corridor. The corridor, which was jointly developed in the 1990s, consists of South Africa, Botswana and Namibia. The structure was formed with an objective to contribute and promote trade facilitation within the three states through transport efficiency by simplifying and harmonizing the requirements and controls that govern the movement of goods and persons to reduce transportation costs and transit times. The event will take place on 22 November on the N4 in Rustenburg, opposite Stay Easy in Northwest. It will start from 9 o'clock Central African time. This message is brought to you by the South African Department of Transport. Africa Digest. It is 17.40 Central African time. Now, a new study which aims to reduce the risk of contracting HIV among men who have sex with other men in South Africa and Namibia has highlighted the stress experienced by this group, which often arises from stigma, social isolation and hostility. The Together Tomorrow is a study exploring the HIV prevention needs of men within same-sex relationships in an attempt to better understand behaviors which could place them at increased risk of the virus. It was put together by the Human Sciences Research Council, or HSRC, in South Africa, together with its partners. More from a lead researcher at the HSRC, Dr. Zainab Isak. Our study is conducted in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, and in Namibia or to look at understanding the HIV prevention and treatment needs of men who have sex with men who are in couples. So fundamentally to understand couples' dynamics and couples' relationships to, to better inform how to develop interventions that men in couples could use. How significant do you think this study is, Doctor? It's significant because of, as far as we know, it's the first study looking at MSM couples. So there's been previous research that looks at MSM as individuals and research from the U.S. and elsewhere have shown that it is in primary partnerships that men face significant, up to two-thirds of the risk of HIV comes from those primary partnerships that's shown in research elsewhere. So we wanted to understand that couple's relationship since it's a key risk area and to identify ways in order to try to minimize that risk amongst couples in relationships. What are some of the factors that put men who have sex with other men at increased risk of HIV? So there are multiple factors. So some are systemic, some are at an individual level. So some of those include that they are marginalized. So they are on the fringes of services. There's high levels of stigmatism. So they are socially marginalized, can't always access services from healthcare facilities partly because of healthcare provider attitudes, also because some of them may perceive that they'd be treated or discriminated against if they access services. So there's a whole host of factors that increase risk. In terms of their needs and challenges, what did the study find? In terms of challenges, there were multiple uh, mental health-related issues, issues with substance abuse. So a significant number of our sample in our survey of 220 couples found high rates of substance abuse and also high rates of being high at last sexual intercourse. So substance abuse, alcohol was an issue. Other factors like mental health and how they had to cope with stigma and isolation was a challenge for them. Access to healthcare services was a challenge in and accessing those services in a non-discriminatory way. Support, just the support we get from our friends and family is not always present for MSM, so they often rely on each other and become dependent within that couple dynamic. So the lack of support and stigma was a major challenge. In the African context, does widespread stigma exacerbate the many challenges that this group face? Definitely. So I think that in different contexts it may be different, partly because of criminalization in some African contexts. I think in South Africa we are fortunate we have progressive legal framework that does not discriminate based on sexual orientation, whereas that's not the case elsewhere on the continent. So there are varying degrees of stigma across the continent and that just exacerbates the experiences and vulnerabilities of MSM. Do you think that having HIV and AIDS services to those who are most at risk can be hugely beneficial to a whole country's approach to HIV and AIDS? 
Certainly, and I think that all our national strategic plans talk to the vulnerability of MSM and other groups like adolescents, etc., and sex workers. So how we address that and how we ensure services for them is key. So if we have a transformative, a progressive healthcare system that understands gender and sexual diversity that is not oriented to heterosexual couples or heterosexual individuals, people may be able to access those services more readily. And then if you are able to access HIV prevention, if you are informed and if you are aware, that may improve your uptake of those prevention services and may reduce some risky behavior. What contribution will the study make, Doctor, to public health initiatives and the design of prevention messages and, of course, interventions to reduce stigma among men who have sex with other men? So I think that this was a preliminary study, was the first study with exploratory, but I think it's the largest that we've had with couples in Southern Africa. So 220 couples in the survey, almost 250 couples in total with the formative phase and the, the survey phase. So I think what we would want, and it's important for us to consider now, what are the implications of these findings for both policy and for practice? So we are thinking of how we could possibly design interventions in future that will look at developing communication mechanisms among couples to better allow them to develop sexual agreements, which we know may have a protective effect if people are clear about what are these sexual agreements. Also to intervene to develop dyadic interventions that can help improve HIV prevention uptake and reduce risky behaviors. And at healthcare settings, providing gender sensitization training to all healthcare professionals through maybe not at service level, but during the curriculum development and training process is important. Our Namibian partner also talked about the importance of thinking of the education system from school. That's Dr. Zainab Isak, a lead researcher at the Human Sciences Research Council in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidecha. Your economics now from Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. The Zimbabwe Stock Exchange is expected to lose a further ground as investors speculate on chances that bank balances, which have been losing value against real U.S. dollars for the better part of the year, could strengthen. This is in the wake of a potential new dispensation in the country's political arena. Many are turning to Bitcoin currency out of desperation as bank deposits lose value rapidly. This measure by Zimbabweans is designed to stem the tide of hyperinflation and financial implosion. However, elevated Bitcoin prices in Zimbabwe appear to be the result of the country's dysfunctional economy and mismatched supply and demand. Informal traders and convenience stores, also known as puzzle shops in South Africa, will get to use their phones to pay for transactions. Through a partnership of MasterCard's payment service, MasterPass, and technological company Spaza App, shops will now get to digitally pay for stock and accept cashless payments from their customers using their mobile phones. Vice President of Product Innovation at MasterCard South Africa, Gabriel Swanepoel, explains. From a legacy perspective, I think that the South African domain has always been a little bit fragmented in the way that electronic acceptance was deployed. And when we say that, we we talk about points where you can pay with a card or be able to do a mobile payment without having to spend cash. And the reason it's important to have an electronic infrastructure where people can pay for goods and services electronically is because of all the um, issues uh, surrounding cash, the handling and the management of cash, and then also the security and, and the fraud risk associated to it. Algeria's energy earnings rose 18% in the first 10 months of 2017, which helped reduce the trade deficit by 34%, according to official data showed earlier. The deficit decline pushed up the coverage of imports by exports to 75%, from 63% in the January to October period of 2016. Oil and gas exports, which accounted for 94.8% of total sales abroad, reached 278 
$18 billion in the first 10 months of this year, compared with $23.4 billion in the same period in 2016 due to higher global crude oil prices. Sudan's currency has strengthened on the black market to 24 Sudanese pounds to the U.S. dollar from 27 pounds last week. President Omar Hassan al-Bashir is meeting the finance minister, central bank governor and other senior officials to discuss the Sudanese pound amid a high demand for foreign currency following the U.S. decision last month to lift two decade-long trade sanctions. The central bank holds the official exchange rate at 6.7 pounds to the dollar, but in recent weeks the currency has rapidly dropped to record lows. The European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michael Barnier, says the EU will prefer an ambitious future partnership with Britain once it leaves. But at a conference in Brussels, he warned member governments they should prepare for no deal. If we manage to negotiate an orderly withdrawal, fully respect integrity of the single market, and establish a level playing field, there is every reason for our future partnership to be ambitious. This is our preferred option. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.95 South African rand, 10.35 Botswana Pula, and 10.02 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 75 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,291 and platinum at $945 per ounce, while the price of print crude oil is at $62.72 a barrel. That's all for now. Thank you very much, Amanda. It's now time for your sports news. Here's Neto Chamane. Good evening, sport fans. Thank you for tuning to Channel Africa with the latest sport news at this hour. I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with athletics news, a 38-member national preparation squad has been released by Athletics South Africa ASA ahead of the 2018 IAAF World Under-20 Championships in Tampere, Finland. The squad features seven athletes who earned medals at the IAAF World Under-18 Championships in Nairobi, Kenya this season, including gold medalist Tsenolo Limao in 100 meters, Ritsidisi Mlenga in 200 meters, Sokwakani Zazini in 400 meter hurdles, Brayton Pool in high jump, and Zini van der Waalt in 400 meter hurdles. Taking the next step forward in their respective careers, the country's rising stars will be out to secure their places in the final team for Global Junior Spectacle to be held between July the 10th to the 15th. The preliminary and final teams for the event will be announced closer to the time. On to cricket news. Australia's cricketers have called on a retired sprint King Usain Bolt to boost their running between the wickets during the Ashes Test Series against England. The Jamaican track superstar, the world record holder in the 100 meters and 200 meters, and eight-time Olympic champion, is working with the Australian batsman to improve the explosiveness of the mark. The 31-year-old who retired from athletics after August's World Championships in London said he was trying to increase the awareness of running while betting. Australian batsman Peter Henscombe said Bolt's tips were welcomed ahead of Thursday's first Ashes test in Brisbane. England wicketkeeper Johnny Bestow says the tourists were content, relaxed, excited as they arrived in Brisbane ahead of this week's opening Ashes test. The first test starts at the Gabba on Thursday. Uh, content, relaxed, excited. I think they're, they're the three things that um, really stand out. I think that the guys have got the experience of um, winning here as well. You've got you've got a great mix of it to be honest with you. You've got guys that have been uh, down here on a, on a few tours now, uh, been on the wrong end of it, but also been on the right end of it. And that mixed with uh, guys that had a, um, a touch of experience last time, uh, whether that be for one or two test matches, uh, and also guys that haven't been here before. There's a there's a really good mix uh, within the group, uh, and as I say, it's an excitement within it as well. 
Besto, a veteran of the 2013-2014 tour when England were whitewashed 5-0, said he would welcome the return of suspended all-rounder Ben Stokes but was confident the squad would do England proud at the Gaba regardless. Vice-Captain Stokes has been suspended since being arrested on suspicion of causing actual bodily harm outside a Bristol nightclub in September. It would be amazing if Stokes comes out here. Uh, I'm sure you guys would uh, all think the same. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic cricketer. Uh, we don't know what's going. We don't know what's going on at the moment. That's that's completely out of our hands. And until that's until that's resolved, we actually don't know what is going to happen. But I'm sure that, that it will get resolved sooner rather than later. We hope because at the end of the day, we want the best cricketers playing in the Ashes, don't we? And that's that's the that's the series we want. We don't want to see guys um, not playing in, in the in the competition levels and the standard going down due to that. If you can't get up for an Ashes series, if you can't get up for England, Australia, then, then what can you get up for? It's uh, The motivation's already there. Whether Ben's here, whether he comes, or the 11 guys that come out and play at the Gabba this week. This is Africa Digest. Let us recap out of stories. Zimbabwe's war veterans on Monday threatened to stage protests and sit-ins at President Mugabe's house until he resigns. Kenya's Supreme Court upholds re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta in last month's repeat presidential vote. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumele Lezondi producer, Luanda Maome, technical producer, Dumelo Mugwena and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. On Channel Africa One on Twitter and plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five on SMS plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We leave you with Ubu by O four seven and Vosinova.
Andire Moni Wande.